Welcome to In Social Work, the podcast series of the University of Buffalo School of Social Work at www.insocialwork.org. We're glad you could join us today. The purpose of In Social Work is to engage practitioners and researchers in lifelong learning and to promote research to practice and practice to research. We educate, we connect, we care. We're In Social Work. Hello from Buffalo, and welcome to In Social Work. My name is Luann Back, and I'll be your host for this episode. The World Health Organization has identified a clear link between violence against women and HIV, and indicates that violence is both a risk factor for HIV, as well as a consequence of being HIV positive. In this podcast, Dr. Joy Learman describes the complex relationship between intimate partner violence and power and control. She discusses the underlying dynamics that can increase a woman's risk of being HIV positive, as well as failing to obtain treatment. Because certain vulnerable groups have a higher risk of HIV, Dr. Learman's research has emphasized understanding contextual factors and personal experiences of HIV-positive African immigrant women. She discusses the primary findings from her narrative analysis, in particular, how marriage can increase a woman's risk for HIV. Dr. Learman concludes by emphasizing the need to provide support and assistance to at-risk groups, particularly immigrant populations, and to develop policies that promote women's reproductive health and decrease their risk of HIV. Dr. Joy Learman is an assistant professor and social work program director at Meredith College. Her research explores the role of gender-based violence and inequality on women's sexual and reproductive health. She was interviewed in August 2017 by Dr. Eusebius Small, Assistant Professor at the University of Texas at Arlington. Joy and I have known each other for years, way back when we were both in graduate school in New York City at Columbia University. Joy, I wonder if you could begin by telling us what sparked your interest in studying intimate partner violence and your other research interests. Sure, Eusebius. After my master's in social work program, I worked for two uh, nonprofit organizations, and my work was around program planning and development. But two of those organizations dealt with intimate partner violence, and so that was my first introduction. Then when I was pursuing my doctorate at the University of Texas at Austin, I had the opportunity to work with Dr. Michelle Roundtree, and her work really emphasizes the intersection between violence against women and HIV. And so that cemented my interest. As I began to learn more about it, I realized that due to gender inequality and violence against women, women are really not always in a position to make healthy, well-informed decisions about their sexual and reproductive health. And therefore, I think it's important to look at structural factors such as sexism and trying to help women lead healthier and violence-free lives. Very good. You know, I can see that you've done some work on HIV and intimate partner violence. For listeners who may not be familiar with the connection between HIV and intimate partner violence, can you explain how these two are connected? Yes. 
Oftentimes, when we think about it, we'll think first of sexual violence. And sexual violence often does increase our risk for HIV and other sexually transmitted infections. And that's a more obvious factor. But physical abuse, emotional abuse are also factors because they really create a type of power gap between two partners. If we're talking about heterosexual partners, between the male and the female partner, it really doesn't allow the woman to make decisions that would help her be safe. So when we talk about the continuum of sexual violence, we also think about coercion. And coercion can include threatening someone into having unwanted sexual contact. It can also include having sex without using contraception against your partner's wishes. And so that prevents a woman from being able to prevent pregnancies or prevent sexually transmitted infection. Yeah, perfect. I think you're, you're right on, especially in research has shown that women who experience this form of violence often suffer from negative mental health outcomes as well as physical health outcomes, including yes. HIV infection and other sexually transmitted infections. And this also takes me back to um, research on HIV, particularly in the U.S. among minority women. Most of these infections among minority women, for example, women of color are 3% or more likely to have HIV compared to the majority women. Uh, yeah. And most of these are from heterosexual sex. I wonder what your take is in terms of these disparities between black and white women. Well, first, I'd like to go back and mention that intimate partner violence is about power and control. And so abusive partners will use whatever means uh, they can to control their partner. And that can include reproductive control. So that could include sabotaging contraceptive use, for example, putting a hole in a condom. Right. It can also include coercing a partner into pregnancy, taking away their sexual autonomy or their re reproductive decision-making. Those are factors I wanted to mention. To answer your question, women experience increasing risks for HIV. So a factor could be their race, their class, their education level, or their age. So women of color are at increased risk because of the hierarchical society that we live in. Then there are other contextual factors that put women, including immigrant women, at even higher risk, including uh, humanitarian crises, war and conflict, natural disasters, extreme poverty, and it might even be the migration process, including living in refugee camps. So women of color, particularly immigrant women, have these additional risk factors that are contextual. I'm glad you bring up these, these risk social contextual factors that impact women of color, particularly Black women, because Research indicates that black women are almost twice as likely to be HIV infected compared to white women when there's no difference, according to research, in their behavior between black right. and white women. And so those contextual factors, I think, are very important for us when you're trying to address this issue and working with black and white women. Don't you think so? Yes. And I think your research points to that as well, because what we know, and you can speak more to this, is that a lot has to do with social networks. And like you say, Black women may have the same sexual health behaviors as white women, but if there's higher rates of infection in their pool 
of sexual partners, then they're going to be at higher risk, even though they're engaging in the same behaviors. And I think that's important because a lot of previous research has focused on individual behaviors and has had less focus on these other structural factors or on these social networks. Thank you. You're right. You conducted a small exploratory qualitative study with HIV-positive women from continental Africa living in Texas. As a native white woman, what were your interactions with the participants like? Well, I was very aware of my identity as a white American-born woman conducting this research. It was very important to me to engage with them in a very culturally sensitive manner. Intercultural interviews add another layer of complexity to any type of research. And in some ways, I'm sure it would have been more helpful to have someone from these women's own culture doing the research, but they were from different nations and had different cultural backgrounds. So it would have been hard to find someone who was conversant with all of those cultures. In some ways, I felt it was actually helpful though to be an outsider to their group because the stigma around HIV is so strong for these women that I'm not sure if they would have been as open in sharing their stories about sexual violence and contracting HIV if the interviewer had been someone who they perceived to be from their own community. The group of women that I interviewed was a very diverse group of women. They had a large range in age. Some had children, some were divorced. They came from five different sub-Saharan nations. They had different languages of origin. So this was a very diverse group of women. And what was interesting is I felt really connected to these women as they were sharing their stories with me. I think because of the extreme sense of stigma and silence around these topics, my perception was that some of the women experienced relief in being able to share these stories personally. Even though I'm from a different culture and had a different context growing up, the dynamics of sexual violence and intimate partner violence and power and control are similar, regardless of your country of origin. And so I really could relate with a lot of the stories that they were sharing, even though my cultural background is different. You mentioned that the experience relief. Could you talk a little bit more of that, what you mean by that? The majority of the women that I spoke to, and again, this is just a small study, so the results aren't generalizable, but I think it is important to highlight individual women's stories. The majority of the women that I spoke to had experienced sexual violence and intimate partner violence growing up and even into adulthood. But because of messages they were given, sometimes indirectly in their communities about not talking about those topics, they didn't share those issues with anyone. There were a few examples where women did try to share an example, uh, sexual violence with a family member. And they were basically told to keep that information to themselves. And that further stigmatized their experience. And so although they had had experience of sexual violence and intimate partner violence, the majority hadn't told anyone about those. It was kind of a taboo to talk about those topics. So I had a sense that having this opportunity to talk to kind of an outsider and talk about these topics was in some way a relief. 
Okay, good. Uh, well, you are, you are right. Sexual violence, first of all, is not something common that is spoken about, particularly from sub-Saharan Africa. And for me, who was raised and brought up in sub-Saharan Africa, it resonates very well with what you are saying. Most of these societies are very closed societies and discussions, particular discussions on matters related to sex are taboo as you as you talk about. Sub-Saharan Africa and, and Africa as a whole is a huge continent. Where did these women come from? Which countries particularly did they come from? These women were from the Democratic Republic of Congo, from Cameroon, Zambia, and Rwanda. So, I mean, there really was a wide diversity in the women who participated in the study. Again, there were a lot of differences based on their education and income level. We had farm workers as well as doctors participate in the study. Most of them had children. One participant did not. So there was really a lot of variety in the women themselves. And I do want to mention that for this study, I chose to use narrative analysis. And to me, using narrative analysis was really important because I really wanted to give the women the opportunity to share their own stories and take myself out of the analysis as much as possible. Narrative analysis has often been used in research with immigrants and refugees and any type of cross-cultural research. And it's found to be a strength-based approach that is very empowering because it puts value on the words of the participants themselves and not on the researcher. What's narrative analysis that? How would you describe it? What is it? Narrative analysis is really giving the opportunity of women to tell their own story. What's interesting is that storytelling is virtually universal. In basically any culture around the world, there's a history and a tradition of storytelling. And so it allows women to tell their own story it's natural, it's accessible, and it's an inviting way to communicate. There's been a long reliance on oral traditions as a means of information sharing around the world. And so it's a way of interviewing women that allows them to tell their stories. For the researcher, their job is to then conduct the analysis afterwards and pull out the salient themes from the women's stories. But you're trying to keep as much integrity in the women's stories as possible. This is especially important in the United States where we have these dominant cultural narratives that are often told and retold about African women that present them as a very one-dimensional character. And that's not what I wanted to do here. And this is something I was very aware of, especially being a white American-born researcher. So I wanted to try to take myself out of their narratives as much as possible. I see that you interviewed women from DRC, Democratic Republic of Congo, and some from Rwanda. Usually sometimes during, these are war-torn countries, and sex has been used as a tool of war. Did these women mention anything to do with the relation between sex and especially sex violence and, and war? One of the women that I interviewed from the Democratic Republic of Congo, she did not experience sex as a tool of war, sexual violence or rape as a tool of war. However, she was deeply impacted by the war, and it is how she lost her husband. So she was a widow. She had been married to one man for her entire life, and he was killed during the war. And so the war definitely did have an impact on her. Interestingly, the 
participant from Rwanda contracted HIV as a child. And so it wasn't through sexual violence or rape or in the context of an intimate partnership. However, again, I think the war was a factor in that the increased rates of sexual violence increased rates of HIV in her community. And so indirectly could have put her at an increased risk for contracting HIV. Hmm, yeah, that's, those are not unusual stories. Joy, what inspired your study? Uh, you did, in part, <laughs> Eusebius. As you know, of course, we worked with some of our other friends and colleagues after our master's program to start a nonprofit organization called the Collective for Orphan Care and Education, which was to operate in a rural part of Western Kenya. In 2006, we went on a trip there together. And while we were there, as you know, we had the opportunity of having different focus groups and talking to community members about HIV. And I was deeply impacted by their stories and the information that they gave us. And I remember in particular one focus group where there was a male teacher and he said, please tell people it back in America that it's not our ignorance that makes us vulnerable to HIV. We're very knowledgeable about HIV and the way it's transmitted. It is our poverty that puts us at risk for contracting HIV. And that really stuck with me. And I think that's what really made me first interested in contextual factors. When I was in Kenya, I was amazed by how much information there was about how HIV is contracted and how to prevent it. Of course, there's always misinformation and myths, but I was impressed with the level of knowledge that people had. And so I wanted to learn more about these contextual factors, especially how they affected women. That's very powerful, Joy. This just reminds me of where we come from. Remember when you were graduate students and I was sharing with you and Marilyn and Bob about the problem of HIV and the impact of HIV in the community. I remember that time back in 2005, 2006, telling you about the people had to, to bury or to pay for more or to, you know, just everyday life. And as students, you ask the question, what can we do? And that's how the Collective for Orphan Care and Education was born. And since that time, the organization has been able to do very great things. We have built classrooms. We have taken students to, to school and high school and some of them to universities. And that was just an idea that was born out of a very casual discussion about something that needs to be done in, in sub-Saharan Africa and in Kenya and Western Kenya. So, so I, I'm, I'm really grateful that just as graduate students, we are able to mobilize our thoughts. And I think this is a lesson for many students who are trying to, to practice what they learn in classroom. Don't you think so? Yes, there's always something that can be done. There's always some resources that can be leveraged. There's information that can be gathered, energy that can be pulled to try to create some change, create some positive impact. Exactly. Now, going back to your study, what were your main findings about your study? The very most important finding from the study was that marriage is a vulnerable status for these women. They were more able to protect themselves from contracting HIV when they were single. Another main finding from the study is that gender inequality and gender-based violence were norms in the communities where these women grew up. 
Now, two of the women grew up in households where the mother figure was very empowered and probably was considered the head of the household in their family, but they were still influenced by the community in general and the the messages they were getting about sexism and patriarchy in their home communities. In terms of gender inequality, these women were experiencing very defined gender roles, norms, and expectations. They also had very limited decision-making in terms of their families. Some of the women had family structures that really favored the men. For example, if there was a divorce, the children would go with the men and the men's families. And so women would lose decision-making about where their children would live after divorce. And so that really greatly affected a lot of the women. There was also tremendous pressure to marry and to have children and to not get divorced. Even if their partners had concurrent sexual partners, they were expected and pressured by family members and other community members to stay in in those relationships. The other piece was that they were not able to say no to sex. And it was very difficult for them to use condoms in the context of marriage. So some of these women felt that they were more able to say no to sex and more able to demand condoms when they weren't with their spouse. I'd also like to mention that these women, again, unfortunately, had many experiences related to sexual violence, physical, and emotional abuse, and also physical, emotional, and economic neglect, where perhaps the male partner in the relationship had more control over the finances and didn't use those finances to promote the health and well-being of their spouse and their children. The women in the study reported that there was very little discussion about sex with their partners. It was just an expectation that they were expected to fulfill. Oftentimes that they knew their partners had concurrent sexual partners and they didn't feel there was anything that they could do about that. They also often felt that their spouses or male sexual partners had more knowledge about HIV condom use and testing than they did. So they had a lot of barriers in family planning or using contraceptive. It's uh, interesting that you know that some of these women thought they were safer being single than married. Mm-hmm. Some studies indicate that marriage can be a vulnerable status for women. In fact, in many sub-Saharan African countries, being married and monogamous woman is one of the highest risk of factors for HIV infection. It almost sounds like oxymoron, right? It's definitely an oxymoron. And oftentimes, when the women would try to make steps to protect their sexual health, it would be turned against them. For example, if a woman was married and she knew that her husband was having concurrent sexual partners, if she asked her husband to use a condom in order to protect herself, her husband would then accuse her of infidelity. And so the women really felt they were in a bind and really had very few options of how to protect themselves. We have to recognize that women represent one half of the global population, yet gender-based disparities, as you have just articulated, really prevent them from accessing half of the resources and power. An equal power relation between men and women, you know, which is inequality of power, has been cited as a key determinant that underlie violence against women. And for women, uh, in, in your study, you know, what, what do you think about the issue of marriage and that inequality in that relationship? 
Unfortunately, I think women will continue to be at risk for sexually transmitted infections like HIV and unintended pregnancies as long as there's inequality in terms of their political and economic power. Women need to have political and economic power in order to remove that gender gap between themselves and their male partners. Having that political and economic power will allow them to more easily negotiate things like condom use and saying no to marriage or being able to divorce a partner who has concurrent sexual partners. In the United States, we have a lot of the same dynamics that I saw in the study. However, we have a lot of laws that protect women, including laws like marital rape laws. We need to have laws like that in order to protect women in other countries as well. And I think you are right. Even in our world today, in our international community, we recognize that power differential between men and women. In fact, in 1993, the United Nations General Assembly proclaimed the declaration of the elimination of violence against women, observing that violence is a manifestation of historically unequal power relations between men and women. And so they recognize this. I wonder what your thoughts are about unequal power relations, especially when it comes to negotiating condom use between partners, because we can have all these proclamations, we can have all these declarations, but there's something fundamental about perhaps our social norms and practices that even this particular proclamation may not really hold. I agree because... I think that's some of the difficulties in focusing too much on individual behaviors. When you're talking about women having to negotiate condom use, in a way, it's almost too late because there's already that power differential. How are you expecting someone who has less power in a certain interaction to be able to negotiate condom use? especially if there's intimate partner violence or sexual violence going on. It's almost impossible. So we really need to be more proactive in increasing women's power in society so that they have more power when they go into those types of sexual negotiations with their partners. In this study, I use the theory of power and gender, which talks a lot about this, that as long as there is an inequality built into society women will have less power within sexual relationships. We really need to address this if we want to protect women from sexually transmitted infections like HIV and unintended pregnancies. And I think you are right just to add on that, even even this idea of empowering a woman to ask their male partner to use condom. For that woman who has been in a relationship that is abusive, for example, whose husband is unfaithful and the power relations are not even to ask that woman to demand that her unfaithful husband wears a condom is something that maybe you are not, you are expecting her to do so much because she may be living in fear. And that Mm -hmm. creates another situation where they become very subservient and just, you know, accept to have sexual relationship with this abusive man, right? Yes. In basically all societies, women are taught to be sexually subservient and men are taught to be sexually dominant. I'll share the story of one of the participants, Brenda Lynn. She's from Cameroon. Brenda Lynn dropped out of school when she was at the age of 15 because she was pregnant. After the relationship ended, at 20, she married her husband. He was much older than her, and they were farmers. And there was an expectation in her community that she have a child every two years. 
Now, in order to have a child every two years, you can't use contraception. And she was one of the women say, who lived in a more rural area. She really didn't have access to it or as much information as her partner had. She had nine children. So at some point in her relationship, she decided she did not want to have any more children. She began to refuse sex to her husband, at which point he became sexually violent and began assaulting her. And he would come home drunk, and this would happen on a regular basis. So how is a woman in her position supposed to negotiate condom use in order to prevent herself from contracting HIV? And when she's reaching out to community members, they're giving her the message that she needs to stay in this relationship. And she needs to continue to have children with her husband if that's what he wants. It's not that it's her individual behavior that's putting her at risk. It's society's belief about the role of women and the role of men that is putting her at risk for HIV. Well, that's a powerful story. Well, you realize that there is some acknowledgement that there is gender inequality by governments and organizations. Governments and organizations have put in place or implemented some ways on how to go around that in terms of gender mainstreaming. If I can recall goal three of the United Nations Millennium Women Goals is related to gender equality. Yet reducing violence as what you've just described is beyond policies and implementation of this. You have to go deep down into some social norms and traditional values. And how do you change that? Because this becomes the world view of such societies and becomes really, really difficult for you to gain inroad into that. And perhaps we may need to start a different conversation about, yes, it's good to put these policies. Yes, it's good to have these gender mainstream strategies. But there's something underlying that we perhaps we may, we may have to have a conversation, right? Yes. I mean, it's a difficult process to change. We need to have more women in positions of power to influence policies and laws. But we also need a lot of awareness building and changing of attitudes. I mean, you can see it in the United States. We have a culture of rape in the United States that, again, says women should be subservient to men and men should be sexually dominant. And it puts women at risk for sexual violence, for sexually transmitted infections, and for unintended pregnancies. So it really takes a multifaceted approach to try to create some type of change. And I think it really needs to take a feminist approach as well, because we need to realize that patriarchy is leading to a lot of these problems. And it might look different in Cameroon than it does in the United States, than it does in Rwanda, but there's still the same underlying dynamics that are putting women at risk. So we need to approach this issue from a variety of standpoints. You know, we need to look at it as a public health issue, for example. We need to look at it um, as a women's rights issue and try to come up with policies that protect women and also their children. Well articulated. I think you're, you're right on the point. And that takes us into, you know, just the scourge of HIV, which has been with us for three decades. According to World Health Organization and UNAIDS, Almost that 7 million people are living with HIV globally today. Over 70% live in sub-Saharan Africa. These are the population that you actually are doing research on. 91% of the world's HIV-positive children live in Africa. And every year, 2.1 million people become infected and over 1 million die of HIV-related complications. 
Now, to set this into context, imagine one million people dying every year from a plane crash. Find that acceptable. Why are we not so outraged by this? Because losing one million people is such a huge, how come the world is not outraged by this? Is it because HIV has been with us for such a long time and we are so fatigued hearing about it? What are your thoughts about it? Well, it is an outrage that that many people are dying every year because it is completely preventable. I think you're right that there's some sense that uh, people have become fatigued hearing about HIV because we've been hearing about it for decades. Because we have lower rates in the United States, I think we can lose focus on it and forget that it's affecting people so drastically in other countries. And we don't always feel the moral responsibility to be involved in helping prevent this type of tragedy in other countries. So I think people really need to know that they can get involved. There's no reason that we need to lose this many people around the world to a preventable disease. Well, we cannot relent. Although deaths have you know, decreased from the way they were in early 2000, and we have had some prevention measures. For example, the President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief also called PEPFAR, or the emergency plans, is a five-year bilateral commitment by the United States government to support HIV-AIDS prevention, care, and treatment in developing countries. This program has had very noticeable impacts on African health systems. For example, every time I go home, I'm not now buying people the way I used to buy them early in 2000s. Mm-hmm. People now are on drugs. They look healthy and they're not sick anymore. But this program is under noticeable attack. It may not continue being funded by Congress. What can we do as social workers to make sure that policymakers and Congress really don't lose sight of this? Again, Americans need to understand our moral responsibility to end preventable infections and disease. And we know how prevention works. We know, as you said, what is working and what is not working. We can make more efforts in those directions to improve this. I think we also need to understand that we live in such interconnected world that what happens to women in sub-Saharan Africa has an impact on the United States. People are migrating all of the time. And so, especially with global health issues and epidemics, what happens in one country has a huge impact on another country. And therefore, even if it's only in our own self-interest, we should be concerned about the health and well-being of women and men in other countries. Yes, indeed. We have had, we have come a global village. What affects one corner of the globe affects all of us. How about this idea of stigma? I wonder whether you, you had any experience from these women. I remember speaking with a caseworker during my research with an AIDS organization here in Dallas, Fort Worth, and I asked her about stigma. She told me a story that I still remember even today. She had a family of three people, a father, a son, and a daughter. They were all HIV positive, but none of them, none of them knew the others were HIV positive. They did not want any of their family members to know they were receiving services at this agency. She had to make sure that they were never in any group meetings together or their appointments to overlap. I wonder what your experience has been. Did these women ever discuss stigma with you? 
Yeah, stigma and the silence around violence against women really was also a key finding of the study. The story that you shared was a very powerful story. I heard uh, similar stories from the women that I spoke with. You know, we talk a lot about stigma around HIV in the United States, but it is nothing compared to the stigma that these women shared with me. This stigma really is obstacle for them reaching out for help. For example, some of the women said, you know, that they have been offered to participate in support groups for people who are HIV positive. And even if there wasn't a member of their own home community, say if they were from Malawi, even if there was no one else from Malawi in that support group, they were afraid that there was anyone else from another African nation that somehow the story of their HIV status would get back to other community members. And so they didn't attend the support group. There are other resources that they could have accessed that they were afraid to, maybe even for a reason as simple as the agency had the word HIV or AIDS associated with it, and they didn't even want to be seen walking in the building. Really, the stigma really prevented them from getting the support and services that they should have had access to. One of the stories that one of the participants told me, her name is Mary, and she is from the Democratic Republic of Congo. She said that the gossip and the mockery that people who are HIV positive would experience in their home left an indelible mark on her. She never told anyone about her status, including her children. Her story really affected me deeply because the fictitious name she chose for herself is Mary. And she was married to her husband her whole life. She was loyal to her husband. She'd never had any other sexual partners. Unfortunately, her husband had other sexual partners and she became infected with HIV. She said that if people had known that she was HIV positive, they would have accused her of being a prostitute. And for her, who was so devout and so pure of spirit, she couldn't even imagine what that would do to her or her children to hear something like that. And so that prevented her from reaching out and sharing with others and accessing resources. And because there was such a, a bind between people, the African-born immigrants living in the United States and their home communities, they're very afraid that any information they share here in the United States might reach their home communities and still impact them, even though they're living so far away across the globe. They're still afraid of the impact of the stigma. Yes, you are, you are right. Your research is also touching, of course, on immigrants. And so based on your research, how can we better support immigrants who have HIV or impacted by HIV? Well, I think it's really important to study the experience of immigrants because they've been kind of neglected in the academic research on HIV. Adding them to the analysis teaches us more about the experiences of all women and how we can prevent HIV. The women in the study provided me with my ideas that they had about how to prevent HIV. One of the issues that they brought up is that there's still not adequate access to condoms in their home communities. They also said that there's still gaps in knowledge about testing and the spread of HIV. So again, there's a lot of knowledge there, but sometimes there's still misinformation and myths that have to be overcome. They also had a very interesting point which was they felt we need to give a more realistic portrayal of HIV. We need to explain to people that HIV is treatable, that there are medications that can help them live healthy and fulfilling lives. They felt that because there was such fear around HIV and because of the long history of people unfortunately progressing 
into AIDS and passing away, there was all this fear, but treatment is much more available. And so they felt like if we could tell people that this is treatable, that maybe more people would be less scared and would be more willing to be tested and to share their status with other people. One other thing that they mentioned I thought was interesting is that they said they really need a role model, someone like Magic Johnson, actually, to come out and talk about HIV in African immigrant communities here in the United States and in their home countries to really take away the stigmatization of HIV. Coming to the end of this, is there anything you would like to add that I've not asked you, Joy? I would just like to emphasize that When I'm teaching my students here in the United States and we're talking about sexual health, I want to emphasize that even though the context in the United States is different from the context in other countries, that the dynamics of intimate partner violence, of power and control are the same regardless of where you are. And unfortunately, the history of patriarchy and that impact is the same regardless of where you are. And so we need to see more of ourselves in immigrants and refugees and people living in other countries and realize that we are going through a lot of the same difficulties and that we can brainstorm new solutions together instead of seeing ourselves as different or less impacted by these issues. Perfect. I think it's good that you bring about students. I think working with students and orienting them to international work, for example, is a powerful thing so that they can be able to go and practice also abroad to realize that part of their work can be very impactful to people who are not their own from their own cultures. Joy, it was a delight to have this conversation with you. I wish you well in your future research endeavors. Thank you so much, Eusebius, and thank you for inspiring this work based on your own experience, your own research. My pleasure. Have a wonderful day. You too. You've been listening to Dr. Joy Learman's discussion on intimate partner violence and HIV risk among vulnerable populations. I'm Luann Back. Please join us again at In Social Work. Hi, I'm Nancy Smith, professor and dean of the University of Buffalo School of Social Work. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We look forward to your continued support of the series. For more information about who we are as a school, our history, our online and on-the-ground degree in continuing education programs, we invite you to visit our website at www.socialwork.buffalo.edu. And while you're there, check out our Technology and Social Work Resource Center. You'll find it under the Community Resources menu.